The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am James Birch, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. Hello, Father. Hello, Jim. Father is the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. And tonight we are going to be <coughs> answering some viewer questions. And our first set of questions um, comes from a viewer, and the question is, uh, many Catholics after death have decided to be cremated instead of being buried in the ground or wall. It seems that this is mostly due to financial reasons. Is this allowed now for true Catholics, or maybe traditional Catholics, or just a Norvus Ordo thing? Uh, actually, the Catholic Church, the true traditional Catholic Church, forbids cremation, very severely, in fact. The uh, true Code of Canada Law, 1918 and before, uh, excommunicated those not only who were, ex who were cremated by their own choice, but those who uh, actually uh, arranged for the creation, you know. So uh, it was the Novus Ordo that uh, has, well, it's a paganization. It's a paganization because it's modernism taking uh, the elements of the Catholic faith and distorting them so badly. <clears throat> the modernists actually in the Vatican have arranged to accommodate the pagan practice of cremation. Uh, the pagan practice of creation goes back to the idea of the spirit sort of being released, you know, from the material. <clears throat> and even that goes back to some kind of philosophical, theosophical ideas that the church obviously rejects as uh, errors, grave errors. So um, the church uh, condemns cremation, and the Novus Ordo has authorized it. And you're right, more and more of the Novus Ordo people are doing it. Uh, you'll even find that at their so-called, uh, well, they, they used to be called funerals or masses of requiem. Uh, now they're uh, resurrection masses, which are sort of Novosoro happy hours. Uh, they might even have uh, an urn or, a, or a, a pot or a vase or some type of uh, container of ashes of the person whose body has been cremated. <clears throat> And um, it's, it's an evil practice. The church has always condemned it as such. Uh, are there any just, is there any justification to allow cremation? Yeah, the church recognized in times of plague, for example, but only in the most extreme circumstances uh, would the church ever approve of this. And we, we see the, the consequences of this. Um, this general... Um, Obsession with the body during life and, and, and just basically then contempt for the body during death. As though you put the God body curbside for, the, for the, uh, you know, the, 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 dump, the trash truck to come and just pick it and take it away. That's, that's how little respect they have for it. And so we have, uh, was it Ray Bradbury uh, who, who wrote the, the, the you know, the scientific knowledge novels? 454. Right, right. Right. He, he wanted his ashes blasted into space, right? And so, uh, who was it uh, when Kennedy uh, uh, went down 
in the Atlantic, right, uh, in, the, in the airplane. They later took his remains and they, created, they, they, they spread them over the, over the ocean. Some want their ashes thrown to the sky and mountaintops to be carried by the winds. And all of this, it's a very pagan idea, you know. Um, it's almost as bad as, as the priest getting up and talking about how now Harry's on the ninth tee, you know, and uh, up in heaven, you know, and he's hitting that 400-yard drive that he could never hit here on earth and all that. It's just total nonsense, you know. It's all about feeling good, though, you know. <clears throat> the idea of purgatory and praying for the soul of the individual because the ultimate end of the individual, the purpose uh, for which he's created is to see God and be united with God in heaven and, and, and share the, the divine life in heaven, have what our Lord called eternal life. <clears throat> that does, that's not even a factor. A lot of these uh, Novaso people are clergy, you know, for that matter. So uh, it's, it's definitely an abuse. The church herself, the true church, uh, following upon divine revelation, as we find in St. Paul's vessels, regards the body as something holy. It's something, even the corpse, um, it, the, the body is an essential part of, of human nature. You know? It's not just a, a shell, right, uh, that we climb out of like some, uh, some butterfly leaving behind this, this uh, shell. It's, uh, it's an essential part of human, be and human nature, so much so that God will have a resurrection at the end to reunite the soul with the body. And uh, so it is necessary uh, to treat the body with respect. And so we do. Traditionally, the Catholic Church has always uh, uh, prepared the body um, uh, with some dignity, right? And uh, surrounded by prayers also. Uh, put it in a casket, not just dump it in the ground like it was a banana peel, you know, a piece of uh, garbage or gra coffee grounds. Uh, we treat our garbage better than, you know, than what they do with the, uh, the body these days. <clears throat> and, um, and so, uh, and we, all, we have rights there for the burial of the body. We bring the body to the, to the uh, church whenever we can uh, to have the mass right there. And uh, we receive the body, bring it up the aisle. At the end, we, 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 take, we have prayers right there at the casket, right there before the sanctuary. Lead the body down the aisle. There's the, the praying or the singing of the in paradisum, right? Uh, may the angels uh, conduct thee into paradise. Uh, we have the funeral procession, right? Taking the body to the gravesite, graveyard. We have entire, you know, vast acreage of land. Uh, devoted to receiving the body, they call it in German. They call it the Friedhof, the the, the uh, court of peace, you know, um, a cemetery, resting place from the Greek, you know, place of rest. And so, uh, uh, and we do we go visit the graves and we place flowers in the graves and we realize the soul is not there, but these are the mortal remains of our loved one, and we anticipate the resurrection that way. So all of this, these are holy practices, you know, they're not just uh, cultural phenomena that have nothing to do, uh, you know, outside of the human mind. They correspond to a reality that our faith teaches us about the importance of the body and the, uh, the resurrection. You know, you notice at the same time the Novus Ordo is uh, letting people just uh, incinerate their loved ones. By the way, it's a, it's a miserable process, I understand. They have to heat the body up to so many... But it's at 1,200 degrees or hotter. 
sometimes even 3,000, I heard. And then the, the, the uh, gases in the lungs expand, and there's like, you hear the corpse screaming, you know, as the gases are rushing out of the body uh, past the vocal cords. This is how it's been described to me, anyway. And, uh, you know, you put the body of your loved one in, you bring it out, and there's just a bunch of uh, dust there. Uh, that's all you've got left. Maybe a few shards of bone, that's it. Uh, and, um, and the same Novosoto that is approving this um, is a, it has lost a lot of reverence for the relics. You know, relics of the saints. Uh, you just don't hear too much of that anymore. You know, there are a lot of Novosoto clergy who don't go in for that. And again, the reason why the church honors the relics of the saints is because those there's material bodies united to the souls, glorified God. They were used to glorify Him. And uh, they are due reverence because they're an essential part of a human nature. <clears throat> the body belonging to a saint, which was at the service of God here in this life, should be treated with reverence, not only out of respect for the, for the saint, but out of respect for God, who sanctified the body through um, baptism and uh, through the sacraments. I mean, we receive the sacraments through the body. These are material elements, the matter and the form, applied to the body. And uh, we receive the matter, the water, the anointing, the host itself, and through the matter of the body we receive that. Our Lord comes to us this way, <clears throat> and the ears of all of those who hear the sacrament <clears throat> pronounced, they're hearing the form of the sacrament, <clears throat> the meaning of the sacrament. So the body is an integral part of our human nature. It's not simply uh, like the wrapper. It can't just simply be discarded uh, like the banana peel, as I say. It has to be treated with respect and reverence. And there, there are so many other aberrations connected with the Novus Ordo uh, allowance of this pagan practice for the disposal of the human body. There's so many other aberrations that go along with that mentality. I mean, you could go on making a list of them. And they're all interconnected. But this cremation uh, business is something really shameful for the Nova Sorda. If they had, if they had any sense of shame, they would be ashamed of it. Interesting that you, you mentioned uh, also the relics because um, I took a group of students to the Basilica in St. Louis. It's a beautiful basilica. It's got some of the, I think the most the mosaics in all of the, the world in any, in any church. And most of it was very traditional. Other than there was a, a few new parts. But there's a lacking in any type of relics inside the basilica at all. Mm. And the tour guide that we had was so impressed with our students because they could read some of the Latin and were very interested in the church that he said, well, let me take you in the back. You might, we don't normally mm. take visitors back there. Um, you might be interested in some of the items that we have in the back. And he brought us to the back, and there was a room that was full of dozens and dozens and dozens <clears throat> of the most beautiful and amazing relics <clears throat> that they had just hidden away in a room that no one ever gets to see anymore. Um, but for some reason, they couldn't, I guess, bring themselves to, to just dispose of them as many, many places had. Well, someone must be protecting them, obviously. And uh, so mm. it's interesting that you, you mentioned that because that's the way that Novus Ordo does treat mm. the relics, as if mm. they're just not important, we'll hide them in a back room or, or just dispose of them. Well, the relic may be a shard of bone or a little bit of even, even earth from the grave of a saint, you know. But the reliquaries are beautiful. Mm. You know, we, we put our art and our precious metals and gems into the reliquary because we're saying that that shard of bone there 
is the most precious element. You know, the reliquary may be very ornate, very beautiful, uh, exquisite work of art, and very costly in terms of its intrinsic value of metal and, and, and gem. But the real value is we have the this bit of the, the, the body of a saint, a bit of a bone or something like that. We realize that this has been sanctified by God through his sacraments, through baptism, through the anointing. You know, if they received the sacrament of extreme unction, as so many of the saints did. Um, that this is something that is precious in the eyes of God. And uh, the resurrection will occur. You know, so we, we treat these things with saints with respect. I mean, <clears throat> we've, they've gotten away from <clears throat> the devotion to the sacred heart of our Lord. Okay? They've replaced that devotion to the sacred heart of our Lord with this divine mercy thing, which just shows a couple of rays of light, one pink and one, one uh, bright colored light, uh, white coming out of our Lord's chest, but there's no heart there, see? And uh, they've gotten away from the idea that uh, Christ's heart is the, actually a human heart belonging to a divine person. And therefore, because it is the, the human heart of a divine person, the incarnate, that deserves adoration, you know, because it is united uh, uh, by, by nature, uh, the human nature to the divinity. And so, and like the precious blood of our Lord too, you know, that's a material thing. But they have lost that sense of the Novus So, you know, what you described here makes perfect sense. Now they keep it somewhere uh, off the beaten track, you know, and they take certain select souls they think might appreciate it. At least the, the guide you had right. understood, you know, that our students would appreciate that. And I'm sure they did appreciate it very much. So I thank that guide for doing that. <clears throat> but obviously there are many other Catholic people there they just don't show that to, you know, or the modern Catholics. There are <clears throat> relic chapels around the country that are kind of throwbacks to the old Catholic days, you know. And there are still people who have enough faith, even in the Novus Ordo, who have enough faith and understanding of the faith to appreciate the significance of these things. In terms of the incarnation of our Lord, our adoration of the precious blood of our Lord and, and so the, the material element of our Lord's human nature and his saints, the connection with his saints in the resurrection. Um, but as the modernists have downplayed all of that as, and almost with a certain embarrassment, you know, they give you a condescending smile and say, well, yes, they used to think all of that, you know, but we don't follow it. That's kind of the, you know, Neanderthal, you know. Uh, those were back in the Dark Ages. Uh, that's, the modernists uh, poo-poo the idea and actually um, make it as though people should be embarrassed to believe these things and to venerate these things. They should be embarrassed, but again, as I say, they have no sense of shame whatsoever in their faithlessness. Um, and cremation is a part of that, a part of that whole modernist, contemptuous idea where they want to take the old faith and they want to basically put it in the crematorium and reduce it to ashes. Uh, the next question actually kind of follows up on, on this sum, and that is, um, what are the church's teachings on organ donation? Is a person allowed to donate a kidney or other organs? Mm -hmm. uh, well, <clears throat> the church itself 
has not, to my knowledge, made an actual formal pronouncement on that subject. Um, the, you know, if we're going to look back over the modernist times, you know, uh, the modernists had hijacked the Vatican and taken control of it, okay? The modernist voice coming out of the Vatican, we do not consider reliable, okay? Uh, so if you look at the modern church or the modernists, you'd say, well, yes, they go along with this. But <clears throat> even they have raised the question, well, um, when you take these vital organs out of people, are they already really dead? Or are you murdering them by actually cutting their heart out of them or their lungs or their kidneys? Or <clears throat> and so there was a big scandal up at the Cleveland Clinic. Oh, my goodness, 15 years ago, maybe. Maybe, maybe not quite, <clears throat> about the question of whether they were taking the organs from uh, organ donors uh, and causing their deaths. You know, big issue about that. Of course, uh, circulating around this is the question of brain death. They, they've actually had to come up with some kind of a definition, medical definition for death that they can accept, that would allow them to take the organs from a body <clears throat> which is still functioning, Okay? In other words, there's respiration still going on because perhaps there's a ventilator, right? There's still circulation. The heart might still be beating. But they don't get the necessarily type of waves they need from the brain. So they say, basically, the brain is dead. <clears throat> so this person is dead medically. So we can go in and we can start cutting away and dissecting the individual, rushing their organs off to wherever they're needed by somebody else. Now, it's all under the guise of altruism. What a great heroic thing it is to give your organs away. And what a, what a blessing it is. And we always hear about the people who benefited from that. Their lives have been prolonged by receiving somebody else's heart, somebody else's kidneys, somebody else's uh, lungs, and so on. That has nothing to do with whether it's, whether it's right or not. <clears throat> I mean, there are a lot of crimes committed that, that benefit people. You know, I mean, I, I could actually... I could actually uh, commit a theft and then donate the money to, uh, you know, to well, cancer research or to uh, uh, neonatal, uh, you know, creating a neonatal ward in a, in, a, in a hospital. And would people praise me for doing that? I could be a, a gangster and I could be out peddling drugs and committing all kinds of crimes, take the money and as a ta for tax purposes, donate $100 million to an orphanage or something. And so the fact that something good comes from it doesn't mean it's right to do it in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's a, a Dr. Paul Byrne, who is uh, very highly credentialed, very serious Catholic physician, who has traveled the country explaining that these organ donations are absolutely wrong. The, the consequences for the body are very severe, even when they do prolong life. The body is constantly trying to reject this because you've got something alien. It belongs to somebody else. It doesn't belong to you. You have to suppress the immune system. And, and he says this is a sign that this is not natural and it's anti-natural. Um, and he makes a very strong case, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, but it's not dogma. It's not, he makes a strong case, but it's not a dogma. Right? It's a medical case that he makes, essentially, right? and maybe a philosophical case and some theological case, too. But nonetheless, even if you have a very strong theological case, a theological possibility or probability, 
it's not a dogma. So you can't say, well, that's, that it would be heretical to do that, or it would be uh, contrary to the faith to do that, because somebody makes a theological case about it. So um, one has to be very careful about that, too. Um, so if somebody were to say, well, should this be done, basically what I would be giving is my opinion or the opinion of others. I don't know that the actual traditional Catholic Church has ever condemned it. I don't know that it had the opportunity to do so before the modernists took over, mm -hmm. because organ donations were not very common back then. Maybe corneal transplants. I don't know when they came in. But we're, we're talking about entire vital organs. Right. Uh, the cornea is not a vital organ of the body. Mm -hmm. So to remove it from one person, uh, let's say a heart or a lung, or as I say, a kidney or a liver or whatever, and give it to somebody else, uh, that is that should be still extremely controversial mm -hmm. and should not just be buried, okay? And treat it as though it's a foregone conclusion. That's perfectly fine. Uh, it sounds like brave new world, mm -hmm. you know? Where you actually, and there have been cases of this too, by the way, uh, where they, they've actually had children conceived uh, for the sake of providing cells that some other living person needs. So they mm -hmm. want to harvest mm -hmm. cells or harvest uh, organs, you know, and uh, obviously you, you open up a whole vista of very evil things here, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like horror shows mm -hmm. <laughs> type things. Sure. So one has to be very, very careful about that. <clears throat> Bottom line is this, um, one, th one thing we know for sure, okay, it is murder to cut the heart out of a living person. It's murder to cut the lungs out of a living person. It's murder to cut the kidneys out of a living person. Uh, if you do something to a living person, you're killing that person. That is murder. Mm -hmm. And you cannot murder somebody to save somebody else. This is what they're doing with children. With aborting, aborting children, they say, to save the life of the mother. How often does that happen anyway, You know, let alone the claim? Um, but in any case, that's um, still murder, wanted murder. Um, no one who receives an organ would want to receive an organ, or I, th I think I would hope very few <laughs> would want to receive an organ under those circumstances, even though it might pr prolong their life. They would not murder to prolong their life. Uh, doctors might do it uh, for medical science or whatever, but uh, <clears throat> but I don't think they'd find many clients if they asked them, I can get you an organ, I just have to kill somebody to get it. <clears throat> I don't see many people saying, well, of course, you know, by all means. Um, so, um, we, that I think would rule out the whole, the, the, much of the organ donation right, right from the get-go. Because the organ has to be in a certain condition in order to, to make it, to make it um, viable for transplant or whatever terminology they use. Uh, it cannot have deteriorated or degraded to a point where it, it can be, uh, it can't be given to a living being. Um, there are the other issues, by the way, too. I mean, if you have diseased organs, if you have the organs of somebody who actually is carrying like the HIV uh, contagion, uh, and they've transplanted them from one person to, into another person who otherwise was healthy without that. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are all kinds of reasons for believing that what Dr. Paul Byrne says is correct. Again, I, as I say, though, I mean, what, if when someone didn't agree with Dr. Byrne and said, my son 
has a failing has failing kidneys, my son will die, and I have uh, a match, and I'm going to donate as his father one of my kidneys to save my child's life. I mean, I, I could not tell that person, you're committing a grave sin in doing that, uh, you're going to lose yourself for doing that, you're doing something that is contrary to the uh, perennial practice of the Catholic Church. You know, there was no practice before the, uh, this, this era we're living in right now. Um, so I, I have to, uh, I can, if they, he consulted me, I give my opinion, certainly, uh, and, and other literature on the subject. But again, I mean, I could not impose a moral judgment of mine based on a, a logical opinion. I hope that I know that was that was good. I mean, it, it is a gray area. It's a new area, and you know, and, and it shows the times we're living in, right? Where we don't have uh, uh, the church to be able to help guide us with, mm. with new moral problems that mm. are occurring in society. This shows the importance of the church's magisterial voice and the condition we're in when we don't have that. By the way, uh, Jim, I have been telling people who've asked me about organ donation, don't do it. Uh, I'm just telling them, don't do it, because that means that you're at the mercy of some, of perhaps a very merciless medical practice, and uh, that might give them a license actually to kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the, the, the moral questions, the moral questions that are very clear, are still there over this whole practice. Uh, even though the church might not have pronounced definitively on you know all of the ins and outs of this, there are certain things that are absolutely condemned, and there's no safeguard against those right now that I know of. So I would I would not do it. I would not encourage anyone to do it. I encourage them not to do it because of at least we can say the the abuses mm-hmm. that they're actually killing someone. This brain death business they they kind of contrived that, you know. Uh, they've just contrived a definition uh, that w- allows them to start pulling organs out of people. Dr. Byrne makes a strong point of that. And there, there's a bit of writing, quite a bit of writing about that. You know, is brain death true death? And the answer is it's not really death as we know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I discourage people uh, royally from... Uh, from uh, donating their bodies to science because uh, unless they can be sure that the body, once it is examined, can be given a proper burial with certain dignity, then I'd say don't do that. Uh, unless you can be sure that you're not going to be uh, murdered, okay, <laughs> don't put your body on the line for uh, organ donation. And don't be signing up for organ donation if, if you think you, you, there's a likelihood you're going to be receiving the body, the, the organ from someone they murdered to give it to you. So uh, there's a lot more that could be said about it right now, and I'm trying to kind of uh, edit. You know, like, and I, I guess that the, you know, the, the, there would be almost two different categories, right? You'd have the organ donations where you're talking about you know, a heart or lungs or, or something that would do it, obviously, that, that if you took it from yes. someone would kill them, or, versus maybe, you know, you were talking about you know, a cornea transplant or a kidney. You've got a kidney that right. can survive without that. Right. So you're not actually killing someone. Right. But nonetheless, I mean, when you do take a, a functioning kidney, a kidney out of a person who owns it, I mean, it belongs to them, even if they're willing to give it away to you, you are doing, you're mutilating that body. Mm. You are not helping that body. You're hurting that body, okay? It can survive uh, quite well with one good functioning kidney. 
But as time goes on, uh, you know, there's a reason why God gave us two kidneys, isn't there? Sure. So you might be shortening the life of that person, even even, even under best circumstances. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, so there's a certain violence done, and one has to think about that too, and that can't be dismissed, even when you don't kill somebody. Mm -hmm. Uh, and by the way, even the corneal transplants, I mean, the, the corneal transplants, I, as I understood, were taken from those who were actually dead. They didn't kill people to take the corneal, corneal transplants. Uh, so it's a real interesting study. The Lineker Quarterly uh, out of Britain is very interesting. Dr. Lineker was a contemporary of Thomas More. Actually, he was a doctor, as a physician, who was a teacher of Thomas More. And uh, if if he hadn't died before Henry uh, Henry VIII did what he did, and that led to the martyrdom of Thomas More, Doctor Lineker very well might have also died a, a martyr. You know? uh, very very uh, noble man. He was the one who actually started the British Academy of uh, Medicine. I believe. I'm not sure that's the strict term for it, but it actually traces its origin back to him. So. Um, he, um, the, the Lineker Quarterly is named after him, L-I-N-A-C-R-E. And, um, you know, he, he's a very interesting personage to read about in terms of Catholic history prior to the revolution of Henry VIII and then the miserable uh, Elizabeth, the uh, so-called great, they call her. But uh, in any case, um, uh, but the Lineker Quarterly, as I understand, has carried a number of interesting studies on the subject that one might do well to consult on this subject of brain death, organ donation, and so on. Yeah. Well, thank you for your uh, input and, uh, and wisdom on that, Father. Um, our next topic is uh, going to go uh, in a rather different direction here. So um, our next viewer has some questions about the Jesuit order. And I'm going to try to break this down a little bit so that way uh, we can take it a piece at a time. Um, the first uh, thing that the viewer would like for you to do is to maybe uh, talk about the origins of the um, the Jesuit order, um, St. Ignatius of Loyola, why, why he started it and how it grew. Um, and if maybe you could start with that. Well, when the uh, Protestant Revolution was going full, full war in the 1500s, um, a uh, military officer working for some, I guess, uh, kind of mediocre prince <clears throat> um, in Spain suffered a wound in battle. He, had been a, he was a captain uh, defending the walls, I guess, and took a cannon shot to the leg. <clears throat> he was carried off to a monastery. <clears throat> there the monks took care of him, and his leg healed, but not really. The bone fused together badly, uh, such that it had to be rebroken. Now you can imagine, in a day like that, there was no anesthesia. And uh, it, it must have been just a, like a brutal, brutal experience to, have, to go through that. And um, when, when the bone finally was reset and it did uh, knit itself back together again, um, it, it still wasn't quite right. So... Uh, um, Ignatius Loyola, Ignatius of Loyola, had a limp the rest of his life. As a military man, his career was through. But as he was convalescing in the monastery, his readings 
convinced him that he would not waste his life. He said he took this uh, shot uh, for an earthly prince who, like him, was mortal. And what, what, a, what a waste. He saw the waste of it all, the, the emptiness of it all. He decided the only uh, general, the only captain, the only uh, leader worthy of his allegiance to follow was our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, he dedicated his life to our Lord. And when he left the monastery, he was a very changed man. He went to uh, actually a cave, Manresa. He spent uh, at least a year there, anyway, living as a solitary, you know, kind of a hermit. And uh, it was while he was there that he actually developed uh, the concept of uh, retreats, which now bear his name, Ignatian Retreats, of a, a month, uh, anyway, you know, a, a month or more, in which he thought there was a certain progress that the soul would go through <clears throat> from the dejection of the worldly life, the hopelessness of it all, and, and the soul, the person facing for the first time, maybe with, with such clarity, his state before Almighty God, the state of his soul before God. And then this progress during the Ignatian retreat of bringing him to an appreciation of our Lord, uh, the redemption, the resurrection, and it brought him to this point, well, essentially what St. Ignatius wanted to do was bring souls through, the, I guess, the process that he had been through during his convalescence. And he wanted to produce, at the end, the soul that had come to the point that he was, himself. Um, so he could analyze his own personal experience and try to help others relive that experience with him and to relive, to live it with them. So uh, when he came out, he had conceived the idea of having a, um, a kind of military uh, order for, uh, well, the clergy, for the church, okay? Uh, now there had been, there were military orders, okay? Uh, you had the Knights Malta, the Knights Templar, the Knights uh, Hospitallers and so on military orders that had been hundreds of years fighting battles, you know. They were monks, but they were also warriors on the, on the, on the front against Islam, uh, rapacious, invading, enslaving Islam. But St. Ignatius' idea was <clears throat> to start a kind of crusade there uh, for the faith domestically because of the enemies of faith, and not with sword or scimitar and so on, but with uh, uh, error, you know, the heretics in the church. He wanted to go out and he wanted not only to combat the errors and rescue the Catholics in their faith, he wanted to bring the, the straying Protestants a la Martin Luther and Henry VIII and uh, Mellington and Swingley and Calvin and all of them. He wanted to bring them back to the faith. So he wanted to create uh, battalions of very well-instructed, very godly, holy, saintly individuals who had a fire of zeal for souls, for our Lord. Right? And everything for them was to be at Maior Dei Gloriam, to the greater glory of God. That was the, Their whole lives were to be devoted to that purpose, to the greater glory of God. The AMDG we put on the top of the papers is a, simply an, an acronym, or an acronym. <laughs> It is meant to be, yeah, you understand, it's meant to stand for the ad maiorum 
Day Gloria. Initials. <clears throat> right. Okay. Yeah, there, I, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll get it. I'm old. Uh, but uh, in any case, um, the he he knew he needed an education. Okay, as a military man, he didn't have to have that great education. That I mean, not fight, and that's about all. So he enrolled in the University of Paris. But that only was not only going to, going to give a, an education, but it was going to give him access to young men who were perhaps very uh, zeal, zealous. And so uh, he was the old man. He was 30 years old or so. so. But these young guys who were coming from uh, various parts of the, uh, of the world, of, the, of Europe, streaming into Paris for the education they could get there, uh, were attracted to him. Many of them were. And, uh, Francis Xavier, for example, again, a noble. Many of them were noble. They had to be. They, they could afford to come to Paris. They could be they had their upkeep, and they could stood their studies. You know, and they were going to go on to become professionals, theologians, scientists, and that type of philosophers, right? And um, uh, doctors and so on. I mean, already by this time, there were specialized universities around uh, Padua, Bologna, and so on. <clears throat> Uh, University of Paris actually started as kind of a theological school, but then you know even Harvard, you know, Yale, Princeton, they, they started around some kind of theological purpose, you know, faith-based purpose. So uh, there, <clears throat> St. Ignatius Loyola gathered actually a, a group of young men around him who were fascinated by his zeal, by his faith, and. Uh, uh, he had to be learning the subjects that they were learning. He would be in the classroom with them. Of course, he was considered to be up in years already, and he had to work that much harder you know, to learn these things, but he did. And he did pass, and he did graduate from the University of Paris. <clears throat> and by that time, this little group of, uh, you could call, almost like disciples around him, who are now already... Uh, tasting of that divine fire of charity and love for God and, and a zeal to want to do something for the faith, to dedicate their lives to our Lord. Um, they, they were all ready to uh, begin to form this religious order. At that time, it wasn't just a religious congregation. I mean, when we talk about a religious order, we're talking about orders that go back to the 1100s, 1200s, 1200s, early 1200s, like the Dominicans, 1100s, like the Paramount Tretensions, what we call the Norbertines in this country. I belonged to them for so many years and still have a very devoted part of my stony clothed heart for that order in St. Norbert. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, going back to the Benedictines <clears throat> early on. And uh, the Cistercians, these are religious orders, you know. They have a very special character. And I won't get into that because it gets into juridical things with regard to the church. But congregations came along later, and they're, they're, they don't have the same solid basis. There, there are lots and lots of uh, congregations. You know, Traditionally, they're good congregations. <clears throat> but they don't have the same status in the church as the religious orders do. Yeah. And so uh, St. Ignatius Loyola was starting a religious order in the, in the, in the late 1500s. So this was quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, so anyway, um, 
But uh, Ignatius' order, the Society of Jesus, as it was called, the Jesuits colloquially, but the Society of Jesus, was approved by the Holy See. Finally, its rule was approved. But there's a very, very serious process taking years for religious rule, constitutions, <coughs> statutes governing a religious order to be approved. Very rigorous process. And once that is approved by the Holy See, uh, and you have young men, in some cases women, come and pronounce their solemn vows, they commit themselves for life to this, they can't be changed except by the Holy See because, you know, we're talking about their rights. They vowed to this for life. And you can't just arbitrarily change them. Um, so the supreme authority in the church has to be used to change those, the terms of the agreement, even on the part of the church, out of respect for the members who are solemnly vowed to uh, be members of the religious order and to obey the rule, the Constitution. So, so in any case, um, <clears throat> this is a very serious thing, you know. <clears throat> And uh, the men came in droves, really. And uh, their commitment was so great. Look at St. Francis Xavier, uh, perhaps the most famous disciple of uh, St. Ignatius while he was at the University of Paris. I mean, the man left everything, everything behind, and went off to the east to spread the faith, went to India, <coughs> and on to mainland China, and so on. And he was extremely successful. Uh, the languages he had to learn, um, <clears throat> the travels he took and all the parable, uh, perils that beset him on the way. Uh, he was like a, a new St. Paul, almost. You know? uh, even his death, you know, looking across the straits to Japan, wanting to go to the Forbidden Kingdom to take the faith there. You know? um, it's quite a, a story, the, the, the adventure. If you want to become... If you want to have adventures, become, try to become a saint. Because if you're going to become a saint, you have to have adventures in this life. And you read the, the lives of the saints, and they were like they all read like adventure stories. Uh, of the top rate, you know, adventure stories. And St. Francis Xavier certainly had that. So, uh, in any case, St. Ignatius of Loyola was very, very uh, successful in this. He realized the importance of the intellect and having a very, very good education in the liberal arts and the sciences. Because he realized the church was being attacked from all sides. Her doctrines were being attacked from all sides. And so he wanted those in his religious order not to be like the Franciscans, <clears throat> like the poor, il poverello, <clears throat> who would earn his living by begging and so on, or the Dominicans. They were also a mendicant order. They, they, earned their, they were sustained merely by begging, and whatever they received in alms, they shared with the poor, and they ate the same food that they would give to the poor. That's how they survived. <clears throat> but St. Ignatius Loyola had a different idea. He wanted <clears throat> members of his religious order <clears throat> to be extremely well-educated, but extremely humble. And yes, they would become the scientists, and yes, they would become the men of letters, and yes, they would become the great philosophers and theologians, because their battle was on the level of the intellect. It wasn't with the arm and the, and the sword, the scimitar, and the crossbow. Uh, <clears throat> it was with the mind. And so he wanted to be really, really sharp. 
And so what you found uh, that very soon in the ranks of the religious order of the uh, Society of Jesus, you found scholars of the top-rate scholars coming out um, that became masters of even the sciences as they were known at that time with Newton, Kepler, and so on. And some of the leading-edge science of that day were actually Jesuit priests. People don't even know that. Some of the leading... Uh, scientific devices in those days for the study of uh, electricity and so on, developed by Jesuit priests and so on. Study of the, of the stars, I mean, the, 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 uh, the um, um, astro astronomy, uh, Jesuit priests behind that, you know. And uh, in the process of doing this, and I, I mean, I know the church has uh, uh, held up for ridicule because of the treatment of Galileo, Galileo, well, Galileo Galilei was dabbling in the, in the scriptures. That was his problem. He should have left the scriptures alone and stopped setting himself up so he's going to interpret the scriptures according to his calculations. Okay? Mm -hmm. Besides that, his calculations weren't finished yet. You know? There were still uh, areas of his science, of, of his investigations, that had not really been completed yet. Okay? He actually received a lot of support. <clears throat> in fact, when he finally was condemned to house arrest, okay, <clears throat> he was confined to a palace <clears throat> uh, in the uh, near Florence. Okay, I mean, you and I have, have never lived under such sumptuous surroundings. You know, he was even not. He was not only live, given a, a, a stipend to support himself in this palace. Uh, Pope Urban VIII even gave him the, the stipend to build an observatory for himself and further his scientific investigations. So, you know, you, you have anti-Catholics who say, oh, the church is anti-science, because they did the Galileo Galilei. And, they, and you tell them, well, wait a minute now. <clears throat> yes, the man was confined, finally, after the, all his efforts to make him stop interpreting scriptures. Maybe you Protestants don't understand the value of that, but the church actually considers the scriptures the word of God and that they're not to be trifled with. <clears throat> uh, and we're not to interpret them according to our mathematics or astronomy or anything. They're the word of God, which are above all these other sciences. And, and Galileo couldn't help himself. He wanted to start interpreting things in the Bible. He was a devout man. He knew scripture. He wanted to start uh, uh, sort of meshing his findings with the Bible and he had no business doing that. The church was saying that and told him, stop doing that. And uh, he wouldn't stop, you know. <clears throat> but, you know, how many uh, Catholics, let alone non-Catholics or even anti-Catholics, understand that the church was actually supporting his scientific research even while he was under house arrest mm -hmm. in a palace in Florence. Mm -hmm. Personal expense of Urban VIII mm -hmm. to give him, uh, you know, let him get the instrumentation he needed. So, <clears throat> but there's another aspect to this too. Johannes Kepler was a Protestant. His study of uh, comets was considered so revolutionary by Protestant divines that he had a price on his head. They were looking for him. They wanted to stick him in prison. Or worse, guess where he found safety? You know where. With the Jesuits. The Jesuits took him in and protected him and his scientific research from the Protestants who are out to get him and, and silence him. I mean, this is like the unknown history. It's, 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 it's because uh, those who win the war write the history books, you know. 
and uh, they've got, you know, they're using uh, caricature of the Inquisition, the caricature of the Galileo affair to try to attack the church. It's absolutely unfair. But this is what they did with our Lord. And our Lord warned his apostles that if they do this to him, they're going to do it to them too. We've got to expect that this is how people are going to behave themselves. But anyway, there were some very profound uh, thinkers among the Jesuits. Finally, it got so bad, or so good, in the Jesuits, that the, um, the Masons had marked them for death. I mean, uh, what's his name? Uh, Voltaire, uh, that's his nickname. The Shocker, basically. His real name, Francois-Marie Arouet. That's how he was baptized, a Catholic, right? Mm -hmm. And he was Jesuit educated. And he was a man who uh, was, a, he had a quick wit, very clever, <clears throat> but that's as far as it went. Okay, and had a razor sharp tongue. Um, he was a literate literatus, but he was not a, a, bright, a an intelligent man who could think deep thoughts. Okay, uh, so he could be very entertaining, but not very enlightening. Okay, read, don't read the things he read. You find they're very scurrilous. Okay, and he found he could make a pretty good living by attacking things that were holy and sacred, and the people who liked that kind of humor. Uh, lowbrow humor, uh, you know, would pay him, okay, and sustain him. Uh, the story is there that, that he, Francois Mariaroué, a Jesuit educator, but most everybody was in those days who went on to higher education, um, <clears throat> was sitting at a table in the Jesuit refectory one day when uh, the reading was going on from the Bible or, or some spiritual reader. And a donkey <clears throat> comes running in. That would not be unusual in those days because they had fields, you know, they had livestock, they had all this stuff. So a donkey comes chased by a lay brother, <clears throat> and the donkey ducks into the, into the uh, refectory while they're all sitting there eating. <clears throat> and uh, the priests get up from the table and they're helping the lay brother chase this donkey around the room and get him out of the room. And no sooner does the donkey just bolt out of the room and, you know, the priest and liberal think, you know, finally, you know. Then Voltaire stands up and shouts out, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And you recognize the quotation, right? Uh, calling everybody in the room, basically, you know, like a jackass. Um, but, I mean, here we have a literal, literal you know, a real sure. animal jackass. Yeah. And, but even our Lord, you know, even our Lord. So, uh, this is the kind of kind of gutter mind the guy had. You know, this is what he thinks. And, but he doesn't have enough sense to say, okay, well, you know, that might be funny on one low level, but it's not prudent, and I shouldn't say it. It's blasphemous. But he just blurts it out. And that's the kind of showman he was. Um, well, anyway, uh, as he developed his anti-Catholicism to a fever pitch, Voltaire used to write... Uh, at the bottom of all of his correspondence, écrasez l'enfant, crush the wretched thing, meaning the church, crush the church, obliterate it. <clears throat> he said that the first thing we have to do, the first step to accomplish that is you have to get rid of the Jesuits. That's the respect he had for them, even though he had such contempt for the faith. He had this much respect for the Jesuits. He said, the Jesuits are what stand in our way. We have to, have to get past the Jesuits in order to attack the rest of the church. They were like the bulwark against 
all of the attacks of the, of the so-called intellectuals, the intelligentsia of the day. Um, and so the Masons got that from Voltaire, that they had to attack the Jesuits. And by the mid-1700s, just, uh, you know, 200 years after the order was created, really, uh, they were well on their way to attacking, attacking, attacking. They had started, they got the, the most Catholic prince, uh, king of France, to suppress the Jesuits in all French territories. Right? France and all the areas controlled by France. Jesuits were banned, considered criminals, <clears throat> driven out, imprisoned, put to death, whatever. Uh, so the Jesuit order was erased by the royal decree. In Spain, same thing. They got it affected. In Portugal, same thing. Uh, the Marquis de Pombal, the minister. It was through the, the uh, prime ministers who were Masons in those countries. They had the, the kings do this. See? But the pressure would not relent because uh, Clement XIII was pope at that time. He was under enormous pressure from the Masons to suppress the Jesuits throughout the world. In other words, make the order simply go away. You know? Erase it. He wouldn't do it. You know what they were up to. He's a very, very courageous, good pope. He's the same pope, by the way, who, who spread the devotion to the Sacred Heart. Mm -hmm. He established the first national feast of the Sacred Heart in Poland. And there are many other beautiful, powerful things that Pope Clement XIII did, but I think one of the greatest things to his credit is he would not cave into the pressure of the Masons. And we're talking about very powerful people in the courts of very powerful kings, and he would not do it. But, <clears throat> but uh, it was recommended to him at one time to make a cardinal out of a, Franci a Franciscan. One of those who recommended that he, Clement XIII, raise this Franciscan to the level of a cardinal was the, was the master general, the superior general, rather, of the Jesuits, who recommended this Franciscan to be advanced to the cardinalate. It's interesting how this all works out, because when Clement XIII died, finally, that Franciscan, now a cardinal, was elected the next pope. He took the name Clement XIV, and the pressure began on him. The ministers of state of, the, of, of these kings, Masons, took credit for the election of this man. It was a forerunner to the Masons' call to infiltrate the church and elect their own pope. As the permanent instructor of the Alta Bandita tells us from the early 1800s, they had done it before, see. So this wasn't a new idea, except the idea of infiltrating to make it happen. There, back in the late uh, 1780s, they thought that the political pressures on the cardinals had produced their results, see. Not necessarily infiltration. <clears throat> they got their man, though, and sure enough, Clement XIV did bow to their will, and he suppressed the Jesuits. Uh, the document that he issued, suppressing them, was a masterpiece in obfuscation and probably prevarication, too. He says, for this reason, for that reason, and for reasons known only within our hearts, mm -hmm. within our heart, we suppress the Jesuits, you know. Well, we know what that was, okay? And the Masons were just chortling for glee. They succeeded in, in this. <clears throat> in the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita, 
uh, in the 18, in 18, well, let's see, that would have been 120, 130 years later, right? Uh, not even that, actually, what I'm talking about, late 1780s. And this document, the instruction of the Alta Vendita came about in the, about 1810, 1815, right? So actually, you know, maybe 40 years later, uh, they were saying we have to infiltrate the church and get our own pope. They actually mentioned, Nubius, who wrote the document, actually mentioned Ganganelli, the Franciscan, become cardinal, become Clement XIV, mentioned him by name. We need another pope just like him. That's, that's enough to make you quake in your boots if your name is Ganganelli and, you're, and you took the name Clement XIV. The Masons want another pope just like you. But anyway, with that, <clears throat> all throughout the world, missives went out directing uh, Jesuits that they were done, that there was no more Jesuit order, report to the local bishop, whatever it was. With that, I mean, the troops, uh, the royal troops would go on the march and forcibly march at bayonet point Jesuits out of their religious houses. I mean, even in Southern California, the original missions there were not established by uh, Franciscans. They were Jesuits who were, who were there as the missionaries. You know? mm -hmm. Now, the Franciscans were called upon to fill the, 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 the vacancies left by the Jesuits who were cruelly rounded up, boarded, loaded on ships like slaves in the slaveholds, and often left to starve, die of disease, or if they survived the voyage across the Atlantic to, uh, uh, or the Pacific to be dumped on some shore of some uh, like wilderness, <clears throat> uh, or even not dumped on shore, just thrown overboard to swim for their lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and through the jungle, you know, I mean, thousands of them died this way. And uh, it, was, it was awful, it was cruel, it was vicious, it was savage what they did to the Jesuits. Because, but, but they did this because they hated them. The enemies of the, of the faith hated these men. And uh, this is how they treated them. And so, from that point on, the Masons were making steady progress. <clears throat> But the popes would begin to wise up a little bit, see. There were popes and elected who were strong enough, uh, who resisted Napoleon, <clears throat> okay, Pius VI, Pius VII, sorry. They had prices on their head. Napoleon captured both of them and held them. So these were men who had some backbone, they had some spiritual backbone. And that is when the Masons said, we have to infiltrate the church and elect our own pope again. So, um, in any case, the Jesuits were restored 40 years after they were suppressed, but it was never the same. Like, something had gone out of them. It just wasn't the same order, with the same zeal anymore. And this uh, may, might explain why the Masons were okay with them. And then the Masons, uh, then the, the, the Jesuits grew through the 1800s into our own century, and then became the leaders of the revolution. They became like the leaders of... Uh, um, you know, a certain process theology and so on, as though something had gotten into them that had revolutionized them, almost like a Novus Ordoism before there was a Novus... Well, the Novus Ordo was long in coming. It was developed slowly in the 19-teens and 20s and 30s and 40s. There's a reason why Pope Pius X issued the encyclical Pascendi in 1907, I mean, even he says in his encyclical that he'd been trying to appeal to these, to these modernists within the church and in the clergy for years. So he says there's a backstory to this. And then he wrote the encyclical in 1907 finally because he realized 
that all of his efforts came to naught. So this was going on a long time, even before Pius X was elected. <clears throat> so the modernists, the Masons, were at work within the Church all those years, you know, well, could they working be, to corrupt. Have, uh, could they have been uh, purposely focusing on the Jesuit order, too, because the Jesuits were the educators of the next generation, and they, and they thought that would be the place to start, too, because if you could... That's a very good observation, Sean. Uh, they saw the Jesuits at the structure. They saw they had the intellectual <coughs> acumen, right? And they were going to use them. You're absolutely right. They would want to infiltrate the Jesuits, just as they said we had to infiltrate the, the church to gain our own pope. Exactly right. Yeah. So that Robeson, uh, when he writes about uh, the conspiracy, he talks about the Jesuits, you know. Uh, and Robeson himself is no, is no angel, you know. But he sees the Jesuit order being conducted in a certain way, even then, in the, in the middle to late 1800s, as though something had happened. Mm -hmm. And something had happened. And, and I'm sure exactly for the reason you just expressed. Pinnacle being the current Pope Francis. The pinnacle being the current Pope of the Novus Ordo, Francis. We have to distinguish that. Mm -hmm. He is the Supreme Pontiff of the Novus Ordo. Okay? Uh, we all can see that. He really is the, the, <coughs> the, the uh, as you say, the pinnacle, uh, the supreme pontiff of the Novus Ordo, the great bridge builder, not wall builder, the great bridge builder, mm -hmm. pontiff, right, of the Novus Ordo. And um, he's, uh, St. Ignatius Loyola would, oh, he must, if he were here, he would weep copiously to think, <coughs> that this would be happening in the name of his own to society of Jesus. You know. But um, still today, uh, one can go to, to Rome, to the uh, Jesu, a, a church dedicated to the holy name of Jesus. That's why it's called Jesu, because it's, it's a church of the holy name of Jesus. And uh, see there, the magnificent altar. Some say it's the most magnificent altar in Rome, where lie the remains of uh, St. Ignatius Loyola. Mm -hmm. And that's in one transept. In the facing transept, you have the relic of St. Uh, Francis Xavier. Actually, his arm with which he would always hold up the cross before him, the crucifix when he was preaching. Mm -hmm. That is there, the reliquary. Uh, St. Francis Xavier, St. Ignatius Loyola together in death, as they were together in life. And uh, it's, a, it's a, you've been there, it's a splendid church, absolutely beautiful church. I've offered Mass in the sacristy chapel there, which is quite an experience. That was larger and more beautiful than many of our churches here in our country. So I'm very grateful to God for that opportunity. But... Um, <clears throat> Sad to say, the Jesuit order throughout the world has become a sorry caricature of what St. Ignatius Loyola really intended it to be, because of what the enemy has done to it. In fact, uh, not far from the Jesu, uh, <clears throat> just north of there, you find a church designated or, or dedicated to St. Ignatius Loyola, that's St. Ignatius Church. <clears throat> and as you walk in that, that church, also very beautiful, a very different feeling about it. You know, you have lighter marbles and so on. It's not as dark. <clears throat> and uh, 
a somber, intellectually somber, you might say, as Saint uh, as the Jesu, you find there uh, off to the right uh, side aisle there a model. This model stands in the Jesuit Church of St. Ignatius, and it consists of various churches of various persuasions. I mean, you can see, but it's something that is characteristically, let's say, Buddhist, something characteristically Shinto, something with a crescent moon on top, characteristically Muslim, okay? And Catholic, right? <clears throat> and Protestant. And all of these churches are radiating out from a common center. There's this big domed thing in the middle that is their common center. The message being that all of these religions all go back to a common belief, a common, you know, essential soul of them all, you know. <clears throat> the, the movement, well, it, which way does it go? Does it go from these various churches then, and you see them kind of, uh, coalescing into this big tent church? Or is it that they all take their origins and it comes out and manifests itself? The answer, I think, is both. They're trying to convey a message with this. And the message is the modern-day ecumenism, <clears throat> uh, that all of these different religions of the world all have their common origin in the same God, okay? They're all manifestations of the same God, and ecumenism is going to bring them all together they, they, as though they've all kind of grown out of the common core and they're all sort of going to return to the common core and all mankind is going to be there back together in one <clears throat> big happy uh, family of evolved humanity they've undergone a spiritual evolution and uh, they're going to have this common soul uh, a la Teilhard de Chardin, where we're all going to be sort of morphed into the cosmic mushroom, uh, <clears throat> returning to uh, evolving, mankind evolving into a kind of deity itself. You know, uh, it, it's it's sinister, it's diabolical, is what it is. Here, this is standing at a Jesuit church. Here, but what, what a what a crime! I mean, this is this is what has come of this order started by St. Ignatius to bring people back to the truth of the Catholic faith. Now it's doing exactly the opposite. What a travesty that is. It's a Novus Ordo. It's a new order. That's exactly, that's exactly why our prayers are so necessary, because God can always take anything, no matter how terrible it looks in our eyes, and, and turn it to good. I mean, at the time when the Jesuit order first went uh, under because of the Masons' uh, pressure on uh, Clement XIV, that gave to America... Uh, a young priest, uh, Father Carroll, who otherwise would not have never come back to America. He was teaching Jesuit, mm -hmm. and he came over and, and basically uh, established the uh, church in America, which uh, uh, God turned into a very flourishing church. Millions of souls mm -hmm. uh, became Catholic over you know, 100, 200 years before Vatican II finally destroyed all of that. But uh, that, that has to be because people were praying and, and doing the right things then, and we needed the same thing now. It seems much more terrible now, but God can turn any anything into good through prayer. Well, we've seen him do it, certainly. Um, but even there, I mean, there are people who would say, with some, you know, it was a justification, obviously, that the American church had a character of its own. Uh, there were aspects that Pope Leo XIII praised. Mm -hmm. He praised General Washington. He called him the Great Washington. Here was a man who did not have a lust for power. 
very rare mm -hmm. in the history of humanity. Leo XIII saw that. Leo XIII saw him <clears throat> as someone who favored morality and was actually a friend of the Catholics, uh, of the Catholic Church in this sense that our Lord had told the apostles, he who is not against you is for you. Okay? And so Leo XIII in his uh, Longinqua Oceani uh, talks about, uh, you know, the church in America and praises its vitality and its growth, its fervor. But then a few years later, he issues Testament Alencia, warning about Americanism, that the church could be infected with this. And there were bishops who were infected with this Americanism. There was a great uh, opposition within the American clergy, the American hierarchy here, <clears throat> those who were Americanists and those who were death on Americanism because they saw it even then mm -hmm. as the advance guard of modernism. Mm -hmm. you know? So that when Vatican II met, I mean, there were dyed-in-the-wool modernists who were theologian advisors to American bishops over there, all, all ready to uh, do their part, to uh, you know, uh, fight for the modernist triumph. <clears throat> Um, so the seeds were sown here already uh, that the Masons had been sowing in Europe here. Uh, we see that our own country was embattled by this from its origins, this, this struggle that was going on. And it, it was a struggle within the church too. It's an interesting history to see the development of the American hierarchy and the, the sides of the, the liberals <clears throat> who were pushing, definitely pushing in the direction of modernism and actually to the applause of the Masons, you know. Mm. And, and the American uh, bishops who were dead set against this because they were old school. They were of the, of the um, mind of St. Pius X. Mm. Um, even before Pashenti was written, they saw what was happening and they did everything they could to resist it. It's, I don't know that there is an actual... Uh, study that has been published on that struggle within the American hierarchy throughout the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Um, and then, of course, you have Cardinal Gibbons. That's the subject of another, of another program. But anyway, I mean, it's interesting you'd mention that uh, because, uh, you know, John Carroll, a uh, Jesuit, uh, woke up one morning and suddenly he found out there were no Jesuits and he was not anymore a Jesuit either. Uh, the religious order that he'd uh, hopefully been inspired by the example of Kennedy said Ignatius Loyola and uh, St. Francis Xavier that it wanted him to, to make him a great missionary of the faith, the true faith, <clears throat> that suddenly that religious order didn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, because Clement XIV had um, succumbed to the pressures of the modernists. Uh, tragic story in that regard. As you say, I mean, God brings the greater good out of everything. We see that. So um, we have to pray for that in our own day now. That if God is going to bring the greater good out of Vatican II and all of the monstrous uh, uh, falsifications they've made in the name of Christ and uh, their modern, their modern uh, liturgy, and uh, so on. It's going to be a very great good indeed. So we, we have to keep that in mind that Our Lady said in the end her, her Immaculate Heart would triumph. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have that on her word. We've seen everything else she predicted at Fatima 
has taken place to the nth degree it has taken place. It's all been fulfilled. There's this one, though. In the end, by Immaculate Heart will triumph. So uh, that's what we have to look forward for, pray for, work for, sacrifice for. And hold on to the traditional Catholic faith for that. Uh, <clears throat> I think you uh, stole my closing lines there, Father. That was very well done. I was hoping that I, I've been wanting to be able to say these things <laughs> and steal your part here. But still, Jim, uh, no one would take it away from you if you looked at the camera and said exactly that. And because what you say is well said and it's so true. Well, I thank you, too, uh, for uh, your uh, uh, wisdom and input tonight, Father. Oh, thank you. And, and um, thanks to our questioners. Yes, uh, very, uh, very good questions. Uh, we, we appreciate receiving them, and we have many more that we're going to continue to go through in our future shows. Uh, if you have any questions about anything we've talked about tonight or about the traditional Catholic faith, please feel free to email those questions. We are also working towards uh, providing you with a, uh, a website that you will be able to go to to obtain some of the materials that um, we've talked about in the past uh, on the show, including uh, the Book of Mother of God and traditional Catholic missals, and we'll pr be providing you with that information in the upcoming shows. I ask you to please remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, that we must pray, we must make sacrifice, and we must consecrate ourselves and our families to the Immaculate Heart. Thank you.